welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here, as always, with Wendy. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Excited to be starting a new Camino. Right, because after our little jaunt on the Hotta Vicentina last month, we are actually ready for a proper Camino, and it's our big Camino for the year. And so we are in the town of Viseu, which is in the center of Portugal, and we are ready to start our Camino tomorrow, and it is the Camino Portuguese Interior, so the Portuguese interior route. And this is the Camino that we've chosen for this year. wasn't originally our first choice. We changed plans many, many times, but in the end, it was just the one that made sense for us this year. Yeah, that always seems to happen. We go through lots of different iterations of what we think we're going to do. And then, yeah, various factors come into play. And yeah, anyway, this one made sense. And I'm excited to be walking in Portugal yet again and seeing yet another part of the country. We've done a lot of walking through Portugal at this point, but there's still more to see. Yeah, there's always more to see. We want to take advantage of being in Portugal. We don't know how long we will be in Portugal, so so long as we're here. Uh, we might as well keep walking some of these routes. And, well, just on that, uh, it's, it's interesting to look at the, the Portuguese interior route. Firstly, there's some confusion sometimes between the standard Portuguese central route from Porto going north to Santiago and the Portuguese interior. Some people think that the central route is, is what's called the interior, but it's not. So we're further east of that. But you did But not as far east as the one that we walked last year, which no one knows about. <laughs> which no one knows about, and maybe a few people do now. Um, but, <laughs> but that's actually an interesting point that, that you make, um, is that there is always more to see. But, you know, I think one of the things we did talk about last year was that if you divide Portugal between west and east, uh, sort of draw a line right down the center of Portugal, most people, about 90% of people, so a huge majority, live in the western half of Portugal, and only about 10% in the eastern half of Portugal. And so walking our last two Camino, uh, Caminos, the Camino Portuguese from Lisbon up to Porto, which is in the western part of the country, and then the Camino Nascent last year in the eastern part, we saw a huge difference in population, in depopulation, in the size of villages, uh, and all kinds of things like that. For this Camino, as you said, we're kind of in the middle of that. So we're, we're almost, if you were to draw that line right down the center of Portugal, that's where we are. And so it's probably going to be not quite like either of those two experiences, but a different one again. So I'm really interested to see what that's like in terms of, you know, what kind of settlements we come across. Are there a lot of villages? Are there a few villages? Are they kind of dying like some of the ones we saw last year because people are moving away or are they vibrant? Um, and so that'll be an interesting part of this Camino, I think. Yeah, I agree. I don't really know what to expect. I haven't done that much research. I just looked at info for the first couple of days of the walk, and I did notice that there is very, very little food along the way. Uh, so we have prepared by bringing enough food for, say, our first three meals, not counting breakfast. Uh, so lunch and dinner and then lunch again, and then we should be able to come across a supermarket or somewhere we can buy food by that point. But I think that seems to be an indication that it's not going to be very largely populated, uh, the areas that we're walking through in the beginning. So we'll see if that trend continues or what it's like. Yeah, it seems to be 
what we're doing lately is walking these remote Caminos where we don't really know exactly what to expect. It's again not a popular Camino. And so the, the Portuguese interior, uh, it's about 200 kilometers just to, across the border into Spain into a, a town called Verin, which is already in Galicia. And so we're planning to walk this in about 10 days and then we'll join the Camino Sanabres and then work towards Santiago from there. But so our focus, you know, in the beginning is the Portuguese interior. And it's an area that we haven't walked in, um, as you mentioned, but it is an area that we have been to a little bit. Um, so where we are now in Viseu, we're still south of the Douro River. And so essentially, once you get north of the Douro, that's the north of Portugal. And so we're still kind of in this central area, you know, between Lisbon and Portugal, let's say, but a little bit further east. And so the Douro Valley is, is a big focus of the early part of this Camino. And that's something that we're familiar with because we walked through this area last year on the Camino Torres. And so it's, it's interesting, actually, that one of our ideas for last year was once we got off the Nascent to walk a little bit of the Torres and then to switch to the Portuguese interior. And the reason that we didn't do that was because if we did that at that time, we would have missed the first few stages coming out of Viseu, which is where we are now. And people have certain ideas as to whether you can really have an, uh, the concept of a complete or a full Camino and whatnot. And we probably shouldn't get into that here, um, but we were kind of completionists in that way. And we didn't want to kind of do half of the CPI and then think, well, when are we ever going to come back and do these first few stages? Mm-hmm. And so it worked out last year that we ended up going and doing the Gator and just Ajiedos and we were able to do all of that. And now come back this year and do all or mostly all of the Portuguese interior because you can actually start as far back as Quimbra, and that's kind of a new development. Quimbra, which is a famous city that's on the standard Camino Portugues from Lisbon. And so, for example, the website Gronce, which is a Spanish website that's very influential, they've just created in the last 12 months their guide for the Portuguese interior. And they have it beginning in Quimbra, but they admit that most people do begin in Viseu or it makes sense to begin in Viseo, and that's kind of the traditional starting point for this Camino. Um, but I think they've maybe extended the waymarking all the way back to Quimbra. So it is actually possible if you're walking the standard Portuguese route uh, in Quimbra, you could switch. But I think those first, I think it's four stages to get from Quimbra to Viseo, and that's, yeah, that's kind of new. Maybe they don't have uh, exactly the signing or the pilgrim facilities and, and things like that. And you could also do a really big loop if you wanted to, because as we've talked about previously, one of the unique features of the Caminos in Portugal is that they are marked both towards Santiago with yellow arrows and towards Fatima with blue arrows. So, you know, you could take one all the way up to Santiago and then head all the way back down on another one. Right. So we're already north of Fatima. And so, yeah, we've already seen here in Viseo signs going one way for Santiago and the other way for Fatima, uh, as you say. So the, the Douro Valley was a big focus of the Camino Torres for us. And it was an amazing day, as we talked about in our last season. And so what we remember from that was that both of those Caminos go through a town called Lamego. And then for the first few kilometers, I don't remember exactly how, how many, but for the early part of the next day, it's the same route. And then there's a very clear division and there's a, there's signs going in one way for the Camino Torres. So that's what we took last year and another way for the CPI. And I just loved that day walking through the vineyards and crossing the river. And it was really amazing. And so it would be really interesting to, to do that again, but to walk a slightly different route. Um, and so I'm not sure what the difference is between the routes or, or why they separate at that point, because they both cross the river ultimately. But anyway, that'll be something to look forward to. So it'll be seeing something that we're familiar with, but maybe from a slightly different perspective. 
And then as we continue further north, we have to go over the mountains at one point and in the region of Portugal that is beyond that is called Trasos Montes, which is literally beyond the mountains or behind the mountains. And that's an area that we spent a couple of days in once uh, when my parents and my brother were here and we took a road trip up into that area. And it's a very beautiful area. You know, it's this mountainous uh, part of Portugal. It's very scenic. You know, there aren't yeah, a lot of large cities or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so we enjoyed, you know, the scenery from the, the from that kind of tourism point of view. But of course, when you're walking, you get to enjoy it and appreciate it even more. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we didn't do any long walks with your parents. Uh, we did a little bit in uh, in a natural park, not a national park, because there's only one of those in Portugal. But we went to some kind of scenic area and walked around a little bit. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing lots more walking uh, through that area because it's really beautiful. I'm also interested in the region of Trás-os-Montes from a linguistic point of view because it's very close to Galicia. And I've heard that the Portuguese that's spoken there is much more similar to Galego than the Portuguese that's spoken in Lisbon, for example. And um, actually, I, I was there just recently. A strange turn of events, but I actually had to go to Chaves, which is on our Camino, so we're going to be there again in nine days or so. But I went there to take an exam. And I did notice some peculiarities of the way that people speak there, the pronunciation of certain sounds and things. So I think that'll be really interesting because, as I've talked about before, I'm learning Galego, and that's been one of my main focuses for this year. So, yeah, I'd like to see just how similar they are and, and yeah, to what extent, you know, people... Well, I know that they are very um, mutually intelligible. Um, I mean, that's generally true anyway for any form of Portuguese and Galego are pretty mutually intelligible. But I think especially people who live around the border, they it's very common for one to speak Portuguese and the other to speak Galego. And sometimes it's even hard to tell which one is speaking what because uh, they can sound very similar. Yeah, I think when you're in a, a depopulated area or a mountainous area, uh, the linguistic aspect of that is always more interesting. So, I mean, even in the western part of the northern part of Portugal, people understand that, that the Portuguese spoken there is closer to Galicia. But if it's in these kind of mountain valleys and things like that, yeah, it might be even might be even closer. Mm-hmm. You know, because those regions, you know, beyond the mountains in Portugal, probably traditionally have had more to do with people in Galicia, like it's easier to get there rather than going over the mountains to, mm. to come back into Portugal. And so, yeah, they probably have more in common with these people just across a, a border rather than the people who are on the other side of the mountains. Yeah. Some other things about the, the Portuguese interior, you know, one of the things we've become interested in in the last year or so, I guess, is the idea of how you build a Camino, if it's going to be a fairly new Camino, what are the things that you want to focus on or prioritize uh, in terms of how to get people to, to do it and what are the facilities that you need to provide and things like that. And I think we've seen a few different approaches and it does depend on whether it's a top-down government-based Camino or if it's a bottom-up Camino that's being promoted by pilgrim associations or by individuals. And mm-hmm. so I think if we look at the nascent that we walked last year, that was a government situation, and what they focused on was signing for sure, 
and also in developing a, a path that was a path that people would want to walk. You know, they put in a lot of work, I think, to try to get permission from property owners to allow people to walk uh, on their property rather than walking, for example, on roads. Um, mm -hmm. And so there, there was one example that we talked about last year where we had to walk on a road for quite a long stretch because they were unable to get this permission from one particular property owner. But in general, they did a really, really good job of that. Um, but then later when we walked the Gera dos Ajeiros, and that was very much a bottom-up approach, a few really passionate individuals who have helped create and promote that Camino, you know, what they are interested in was providing uh, GPS tracks so mm -hmm. that people could follow it. And then that sort of took the, the, the onus or the pressure off them to have really good signage. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the signage there was a little bit haphazard uh, and often it was just took the form of stickers that would be on poles or, or things like that. And so they had just felt that if they had the tracks and if they had a guidebook which they produced, then that would be enough or that, that was the, those were the most important things to focus on originally. And so for the Portuguese uh, interior, or the CPI, as we uh, will probably call it a lot going forward, it's a government-organized Camino. A few years ago, they decided that they wanted to promote this route. And one of the things that they did, or it seems to be that the, the thing that they uh, focused on as their priority was to have albergues at you know, various distances along the Camino. And that reminds me, I'm sure it reminds you too, of the Camino de Madrid. Mm -hmm. which we walked a few years ago, where they also had that, where you had these little albergues, you know, at, at one day's walk distance. And it wasn't a popular Camino and still really isn't. And so it was a, a nice surprise to have the, this albergue network. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea was, you know, if you build it, then they will come. Right. And I think that's also the idea here with the CPI. And so, you know, tomorrow night, for example, which will be our first night on the Camino, there's an albergue for us. And then the next night, there's an albergue again. And so they, you know, built them at reasonable distances and you know i don't think it's taken off in, in terms of a hugely popular camino and we're going to find out but you know i think it's it's still very much under the radar but the facilities are there if it becomes popular yeah and that's something that only a government can do really you know to establish municipal albergues like that yeah as a as a private endeavor that would be very difficult but well we'll see what kind of buildings they've used i think i read some there somewhere that they were old school houses that uh which could also indicate that we are going to go through some some dying villages or villages that have been depopulated and that lo no longer have schools because there are no longer enough uh, you know, school-aged children living in, in the villages, and so they decide to turn those school buildings into albergues. Um, we'll see if that's the case. I think I saw that somewhere. But yeah, it's great that they do have these albergues available. And we also found out today that, in fact, just yesterday, uh, two days before we start walking, mm. a new albergue was inaugurated. And the slightly interesting thing about that is that it's basically between where we're going to stop at the end of our first day and at the end of our second day. So the first day uh, tomorrow for us to Almagen is quite short. It's about 15, 16 kilometers. It's always nice to start your Camino with a, a bit of a short day just to get into mm. the rhythm. Yeah, I'm happy with that. And so this new albergue is about nine kilometers further than that, I believe. And so if you want to do a bigger day, a 25 or so kilometer day, you can now, starting from yesterday, start uh, or stay in this uh, new albergue. But the interesting thing about that is it's kind of between uh, stages. And so not only have they sort of set up these albergues, you know, that makes sense a certain distance apart. Apparently there's appetite for even more to give people more options. And, and that's always good. I mean, 
you know, if you look at the Frances as, as the ultimate example, you have albergues every four kilometers. It's not just right. every 20 or every 25. So uh, this gives people who want to walk a little bit further the first day that option if they want to do that. So that's great. Mm, yeah. I am intrigued by this new albergue because what we read was that it's in a bandstand inside a park, which to me, a bandstand is like a open gazebo type structure with, uh, with a roof, but with uh, no walls, really. And so I'm interested to see if that's really what it is and have they then, you know, added walls? And if so, what is that like? So, but we had already, before we heard about that, we had already, you know, made a reservation for the albergue where we're going to stay and bought all our food and everything and had all of the meals planned out. So I think it makes sense to stick with that plan. But I'm very curious to see what this bandstand albergue is all about. Yeah, I think we very briefly considered the idea that, oh, if we stayed there, we might be the first pilgrims to ever stayed in this place since it only opened yesterday. Um, but, uh, well, that's a pretty superficial thing. So, yeah, we have our plan and, and we'll stick to it. The other thing that I've been quite interested about here in Viseo is that the signage is very, very good. There are signs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are proper signposts with arrows and shells basically at every corner here in Viseo. So that's exciting because it gives a bit of a Camino feel to the city. But it's also interesting because, you know, I think our experience has been that in cities in Portugal, the signage hasn't really been that good for the Camino. Um, if you think of Lisbon, for example, you just have the yellow arrows painted. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Tavira, where we started last year, it also had yellow arrows painted. And, you know, these can fade over time. Mm-hmm. In Tavira, especially, they were all on the ground, which was just a little bit strange because you've always kind of got to be looking on the ground to see where the next arrow is. But, you know, when you've just got painted arrows, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with painted arrows, right? That's the... That's the romanticism of the rebirth of the Camino Frances in the 1980s was, you know, painting arrows everywhere. But, you know, they can fade. Yeah, sometimes you don't know, do you look on the ground? Do you look on the curb? Do you look halfway up a signpost? That's a signpost for something else mm-hmm. uh, where there might be an arrow there or is it on the side of a building and, and whatnot. There was a, a time last year on the Camino Torres where we lost the arrows in one of the cities and then we, we basically went around in a circle to retrace our steps. Mm-hmm. And then we still couldn't pick them up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we ended up, we didn't have the, the GPS tracks. And we ended up just using Google Maps because we knew where we were sort of headed in the, in the first few kilometers. And then we eventually met up with the arrows. But we, at some point, we just lost them twice. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that can happen in cities. But the, the arrows here are, are everywhere. So... If that's an indication, I'm not sure that it is an indication that we're going to have that level of waymarking signs throughout the entire CPI, but, uh, well, if we do, that's great. I did see some signs in Chavis as well when I was there very recently, including a large granite structure, which we also saw one of those here in town in Viseo as well. Yeah, so we have the GPS tracks for the CPI on, on our phones, but, you know, it's always nicer to just follow arrows. It's it's mm. easier and, you know, you don't want to be taking out your phone thinking, are we on the right track or not, and, and doing that every, you know, 10 minutes. So, yeah, hopefully the, the waymarking will be good. We know that the Alberga network is there, so that's that's what we need for mm-hmm. Camino, basically, and maybe a couple more shops to buy some food. Um, where you know We are fortunate that we're here in Viseo and we can get everything that we need for these first couple of days. But hopefully after that, yeah, there'll be some at least some mini markets, if not supermarkets, where we can buy, some, buy what we need. Because we are here in Viseo, we thought just before we start walking tomorrow, we'd also talk a little bit about this city, because this is the first time that we've been to Viseo, and it's 
you know, a city that we've known about, um, you know, perhaps for international visitors, it's not such a famous place, um, but, you know, within Portugal, it's a, it's a city that's known. Prince Henry the Navigator, who's a famous figure, that essentially the father figure of the Age of Discovery, was one of his titles was the Duke of Viseu or the Count of Viseu or something like that. So it's, I just remember reading the, the name of the city, you know, when I was reading books about him. I know it for its street art festival, which they have here every year, and for the fact that it is the only place in Portugal that has an ice skating rink with real ice on it year-round. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting little trivia question, but yeah, and it's a bit random that it's it's in a shopping mall, but it's you know in this city that's not the biggest city in Portugal uh, mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, in Lisbon we don't have one. I'm a big ice skating fan. Um, now that we're living in Lisbon, I just content myself with watching figure skating on television and not actually doing it myself. But if we had a rink in Lisbon, then it is something that I would like to do every now and then. Uh, but we don't. We have some temporary ones that are set up around Christmas time, but in most cases, if not all cases, they're not actually ice. Um, and it's it's a really unpleasant experience to try to skate on this plastic stuff. So um, anyway, Viseo has an ice skating rink inside a shopping mall. Indeed. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to actually get to it while we were here because we had other things that we were doing. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a little strange uh, attraction of, uh, of Viseo. And so Viseo is reasonably close to Coimbra that we mentioned earlier. And Coimbra, you know, is a very famous town in, in Portugal as being uh, this great university town and there's a lot of uh, religious complexes as well and it's a really interesting place for, for pilgrims. And so Viseo is known as the kind of poor person's version of Quimbra, which is not a great way to describe it, but but it is, um, you can kind of see it, you know, the, the, the very center of Viseo is on a hilltop, which is also what, what you see in Quimbra, although it's a much smaller historic core Although, you know, there's a cathedral there, which is very nice, and we visited that the last couple of days with, with the cloister, and there's some other churches and some nice buildings and whatnot up there. You know, beyond this small hilltop settlement, there's also, you know, some other interesting things. Actually, one thing that we checked out yesterday, which was quite unusual, was a pre-Roman site, which is called the Cava do Viriatu, mm-hmm. uh, which might take a little bit of explaining, but basically uh, Viriatus, which is the, the English and the Latin, uh, was a historical figure in Portugal who fought against the Romans. And, you know, well, it, before Portugal existed as a country. Before Portugal course. existed as a country, of course. Uh, and his tribe, or the tribe that, you know, that he was part of, is called the Lusitanians, and that's why... Subsequently, we have words like Lusophone, which refers to Portuguese-speaking people. Basically, what happened was, during the Middle Ages, the Spanish nobility liked to connect themselves with the Visigothic kingdom that had come before them and the Romans that had come before them. And this was a way of differentiating themselves from the Muslims who occupied the southern part of the peninsula. And the Portuguese, who, as we've talked about, liked to think of themselves as not Spanish, also needed to kind of try to find this ancient peoples who they could associate themselves with and so the Lusitanians became this group and so that's why you, you have this word and so you, you hear things like the Via Lusitana for example is one of the names of the communion ascent that we walked last year and so Viriatus is the the historical figure of the Lusitanians and so everything about the Lusitanians kind of gets you know sort of bundled together with him so for example in Lisbon there's a, a big square called the Plaza do Comercio and there's an arch there with four figures uh, in the history of Portugal. And the figures are Vasco da Gama, famous navigator, the Marques de Pombal, who was the person who essentially rebuilt this area after the earthquake, 
uh, Nuno Alvarez Pereira, who fought a famous battle against the Spanish uh, during the late Middle Ages, and then Viriatus is the fourth of these. And so these are sort of considered sort of founding figures over the century of, of Portugal. Anyway, so there's this Cava do Viriatu, which is here in uh, Viseu, and a cava is a ditch or a moat. And you have a, an app, which is the official app of the of the government, uh, or sorry, of the, uh, official, the tourism office. the tourism office here. And there's audio. It's kind of an audio tour. And the first thing they said was something like it was the largest ancient architectural feature on the Iberian Peninsula, which sounds kind of amazing. Yeah. But it is just a ditch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so if you look at it on a map, when you're looking from above, if you just go on and, and search for it on Google Maps, for example, you know, you see this huge area, you see this really large circle, which is the ditch, and then, you know, this, this area uh, in between. But and then there's just buildings and orchards and all kinds of things, you know, inside the ditch, but there's not, there's not a monument, like, inside, it's just the ditch itself, the line on the ground, uh, which has, you know, I think they've embellished it and, you know, put a brick kind of renovation around it. I'm sure originally it was it was dirt. I don't know. It's, it's a bit unclear because also it seems like it doesn't even actually date from the time of Viriatus anyway. Uh, this audio guide says that experts think it's probably from the 10th century, which makes it even less impressive than it already was. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just a tiny little ditch, really. I mean, in terms of the, the depth of it and everything. Yeah. Um, but the funny thing is they've taken this and run with it. So there's so many things named after Viriatus uh, here in town, like pharmacies and fruit shops mm -hmm. and restaurants and, and all kinds of things. Uh, so we checked that out yesterday. And we also uh, looked at some of the street art that you mentioned. And we've seen some pieces by artists who we know. Mm -hmm. uh, Brudalo Dois, who's a famous street artist in Portugal, and he has a series of, of works uh, which are known as Big Trash Animals. And it's really fantastic. We love seeing these. And he takes garbage. Um, and, and when we say garbage... It's more like word? scrap metal. It's more like scrap metal. There you go. Uh, and, and other pieces of scrap. So it's large pieces of things that people have just thrown away rather than you know, the things that you would put in your bin at home and then, and then throw it into the garbage. Uh, and so he makes animals out of this scrap stuff. And it's really impressive. And there's one here which features two monkeys, a, a parent or a mother and a, and a child. Um, and you know, on all of the Portuguese Caminos that we've walked, we've seen these big trash animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and including in Lisbon, there are several examples as well. So we saw that yesterday. And then we saw another one which was cool. And I was reasonably impressed with my own ability to to have noticed this that we saw an entire uh, building entire side of a building which had a piece of street art on it and the first thing i said was this looks like one that we saw last year on the communion in kratu and then we looked and saw the tag by the artist and it was the same artist um, because i thought the figure quite looked quite similar um, but that was a really nice one as well mm -hmm. were there others that that you liked um those were my two favorites there is another one uh, just near where we're staying, but I don't know who the artist is for that one. Um, and there was another artist I recognized, but again, I can't remember their name, uh, but I see their work all over Lisbon uh, because it's very distinctive and they have these unique faces and, and fish. And often you have like this human face on a fish body. Uh, so we saw a couple of those that were on the Mercado Municipal, like the local market building. Um, and yeah, I recognized that right away, but I can't remember. I want to say it's Gonzalo Mar is the name of that artist. Yeah, uh, so sounds that, from, that does ring a bell, yeah. Mm, so that was cool to recognize uh, that person's work because 
yeah, it's something we see a lot. And then we went to the cathedral, as I mentioned, and we got our first stamp, uh, which is always nice and always exciting. And the cathedral is quite interesting because it does feature quite a, you know, quite a few centuries worth of Portuguese architecture. Um, it was originally built in around the 12th or 13th century, but there's now a Renaissance facade on it. But it was quite interesting going inside. The ceiling is a mammaline ceiling, so it's this very distinct late Gothic form of Portuguese architecture that includes navigational motifs from the Portuguese Age of Discovery. And we've seen mammaline ceilings before, actually even in Tavira, where we started the communion ascent uh, last year. But this one was really quite interesting because basically, you know, one of the things you see a lot in mammaline architecture are ropes, or essentially marble or other material made to look like ropes, as in ropes from uh, sailboats. Mm -hmm. And you often see these ropes kind of twisted or intertwined together. But what we saw on the ceiling of the cathedral today were really knotted ropes. Mm -hmm. And so essentially every, uh, every section, sort of above every chapel, you know, you have these, you have this, essentially this cross where the ropes meet. And then you have these four knots. And so basically throughout the cathedral, you see these four knots over and over and over again. And yeah, as you mentioned, something I thought as well, that these were, this was the, the most knotted of these <laughs> mammaline ropes that we've ever seen. Yeah, it was just the one that was most obviously representing ropes. Like it was really hard to miss because these knots were really huge. And, you know, it's something that I know to be a very distinctive feature of mammaline architecture. I mean, in general, mammaline architecture uses a lot of um, yeah, navigational motifs, and so ropes is an obvious one. And if you look hard, you can usually find some ropes somewhere, but nothing as obvious as this. As soon as I looked up on the ceiling, I was like, oh yeah, there's all these knotted ropes. Like This definitely evokes images of, of sailing. Yeah, for sure. And then there's a cloister that's right next to the cathedral, and there were some interesting features there. There's a Romanesque portal, uh, and there's also Portuguese azulejos. It wouldn't be a you know, Portuguese church without azulejos somewhere. So the typical blue and white scenes that you see, um, you know, dating from around the 17th century. So yeah, it was a little bit of a, a walk through the, the history of Portuguese architecture and the Camino goes right past it. So tomorrow morning we'll pick up the the arrows and, and, and go to the cathedral. And as you mentioned in Chavez, which is this town we're going to pass at the end, that you saw this uh, granite sign, quite a significant mm -hmm. sign for the Camino. There's also one like that right opposite the cathedral. In addition to the standard arrows, they've also got, you know, one that's kind of marking it and it actually says Camino Portuguese Interior mm -hmm. on it. So it's really announcing itself that this is mm -hmm. the Camino that you're on and that, that you're about to start walking. So that's what we're going to be doing tomorrow. And mm -hmm. we'll be back uh, with our thoughts as we're going through the Camino Portuguese Interior and then on to the San Andres and beyond. Yep. Looking forward to it. I'm ready. All right. So until next time, bon camino. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen camino.